This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from JTA, Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the first article, Heshi Tischler, leader of the Borough Park anti-lockdown protests, says he's going to be arrested by Shira Hanau. Heshi Tischler, the radio host turned leader of the Borough Park anti-lockdown protests, said he would be arrested Monday morning for inciting a riot against Jacob Kornbluth, a Hasidic reporter at Jewish Insider. Tischler made the announcement in a video posted to Twitter Friday afternoon. I just got a call from the precinct. They will be arresting me Monday morning. I'll be taken in for inciting a riot, Tischler said, adding that he would turn himself in to the 66th precinct in Borough Park though he might let police come get me instead. He concluded, as he does most of his videos, with a plug for his radio show. Tischler was widely denounced by elected officials in New York this week after he cornered Kornbluch at a protest in the Borough Park neighborhood of Brooklyn Wednesday night. In a video of the encounter, Tischler is seen screaming at Kornbluch as a mob falls in behind him. Everybody scream Moser, Tischler yelled at Kornbluch, using a Jewish term, for someone who informs on other Jews to secular authorities. In a tweet shortly after the incident, Kornbluch said he had been punched and kicked by the crowd and that he planned to file charges. On Friday, Kornbluch spoke at a press conference organized by New York Jewish Agenda, a progressive Jewish organization. I hope the investigation will come to a clear conclusion and send the message that everyone, including reporters on the job and every human life, is precious to all of us, said Kornbluh. Nobody should feel unsafe walking the streets of New York City. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio called the incident unacceptable and disgusting. Corey Johnson, head of the New York City Council, tweeted in support of Kornbluh. The attack on Jacob Kornbluh last night was horrifying and reprehensible. All those involved in this vile act must be held accountable, he wrote. On Friday afternoon, messages already circulated among Tischler's supporters encouraging them to show up to his home on Monday morning to support him and to make sure to have Trump flags, the message concluded. The Kornbluh incident was not the only time this week's protests turned ugly. On Tuesday night, crowds of Hasidic protesters in Borough Park burned face masks on the street and chased a reporter out of the area. Around 2 a.m. Wednesday morning, a man who was taking video of the protest was chased and hit with a traffic cone. He was later taken to the hospital. The New York Board of Rabbis condemned recent protests in an Orthodox neighborhood in Brooklyn at which face masks were burned and at least one person wound up in the hospital after being beaten. We cannot defend individuals in our Jewish community who demonstrate a blatant disregard for the COVID-19 health protocols and endanger their lives and those of other people, the 750-member rabbinic group said in a statement Thursday, the New York Post reported. We are also appalled by the shameful behavior of those who burn masks or beat people who protest their non-compliance, the statement added. The statement comes in the wake of several nights of protest in the heavily Orthodox Brooklyn neighborhood of Borough Park 
against measures the city and state are taking to contain the spread of the coronavirus. At one protest, the brother of Morty Getz, a well-known Orthodox businessman who had been outspoken about the need for masks and social distancing, was beaten and had to be taken to the hospital. A reporter and a cameraman were also the targets of violence. Community leaders within the Orthodox community have also spoken out against the protests. I'm ashamed of what happened, said, said Dove Hyken, a former state assemblyman representing heavily Orthodox areas of Brooklyn. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, police response to disgusting assault of Orthodox journalists will be fixed today by Ben Sales. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said the assault of Orthodox journalist Jacob Kornbluh by a crowd in Borough Park was disgusting and vowed that police will have a more organized response if further unrest breaks out. Kornbluh, a reporter for Jewish Insider, was assaulted by a mob of protesters Wednesday night during the second straight night of protests that turned violent in Borough Park, a heavily Orthodox Brooklyn neighborhood. The protests oppose restrictions that have been imposed because Borough Park is experiencing a spike in coronavirus cases. I saw the video of the attack on Jacob Kornbluh. It's absolutely unacceptable, de Blasio said at a press conference Thursday. Disgusting, really. I mean, here's a journalist who really cares about doing the work of informing people what's going on, and here's a mob of people attacking him. It's just unacceptable. There need to be consequences for that. The assault on Cornblue came a day after another Orthodox proponent of mask wearing was beaten up at a protest that also saw people burn masks in the street. No one has been arrested from either protest. De Blasio said he was unsatisfied with the police response. There were some issues yesterday, honestly, in terms of the New York Police Department's approach, he said, adding the police and the city's lawyers are expected to announce clear guidelines as to how the New York Police Department will respond to potential unrest at night. There is something here that needs to be fixed right away, de Blasio said. It will be fixed today and made public. Violence is unacceptable regardless of who commits it. There clearly need to be consequences for the people involved, and I don't know why that hasn't happened already, and it needs to happen, he added. He also rejected the claim that anti-Semitism was fueling enforcement of the regulations in Borough Park and other heavily Orthodox neighborhoods where COVID-19 cases have spiked. We're trying to save everybody's lives in every community, he said. We're trying to protect people from a virus that took the lives of tens of thousands of New Yorkers and that shut down the whole city. This is only about the data and the silence, uh, the science, and we're applying it evenly to all communities with respect, with understanding. And next from JTA, Orthodox Group sues Cuomo over COVID order imposed on eve of holiday by Ron Campeas. Gudath Israel of America, an umbrella body for Haredi Orthodox Jews, sued New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in federal court for pandemic restrictions on religious gatherings that the group says are discriminatory, coming just ahead of three important Jewish holidays. The lawsuit, filed Thursday in Brooklyn in U.S. District Court, seeks a restraining order on restrictions Cuomo announced on Tuesday, a declaration that Cuomo's order is unconstitutional and legal costs. 
48 hours before the onset of these holidays, Defendant Governor Cuomo issued an executive order that singles out and discriminates against all houses of worship and synagogues in particular by imposing occupancy and gathering restrictions that make it impossible for Orthodox Jews to comply with both their religious obligations and the order. The lawsuit follows a week of unrest over the looming COVID restrictions in Orthodox neighborhoods of New York. On Thursday, Mayor Bill de Blasio decried as disgusting an assault on Orthodox journalist Jacob Kornblue, who, as accosted uh, by an Orthodox mob, was accosted by an Orthodox mob in Brooklyn Wednesday night. On Friday at noon, Kornblue and rabbis associated with the liberal New York Jewish agenda scheduled a remote press conference to discuss the need for data-driven, geographically-based public health efforts to contain COVID-19 in New York hotspots and for compliance in all communities, including New York City's Orthodox Jewish communities. NYJA on Thursday released a letter signed by more than 400 rabbis, including more than 150 from New York, supporting the governor and mayor's efforts to stem the spread of COVID-19. The Aguda lawsuit notes that New Yorkers must comply with the order beginning no later than Friday, which is when Hoshana Rabbah falls, and which is followed by Shemini Atzeret and Simchat Torah. The order will be in place for two weeks. These holidays each have special prayers and rituals that are incorporated into worship services, the lawsuit says. Orthodox Jews will gather at their synagogues for collective prayer, Torah readings, remembrances of deceased loved ones, and other rituals. Cuomo's order, outlined in maps he posted on Twitter, imposes restrictions according to the severity of the coronavirus infection rate in designated areas of New York City and its northern suburbs. Houses of worship and red zones are restricted to 25% capacity or a maximum of 10 people. Orange zones, 33% of capacity or 25 people maximum. And yellow zones, 50% capacity. Many Haredi Orthodox communities which have been hard hit by the virus are aligned with the red zones. The lawsuit notes that Orthodox Jews are especially affected by the worship restrictions because their faith prohibits driving on certain holy days and thus are unable to travel to synagogues in less affected zones. And next we'll switch over to the Times of Israel. Netanyahu mulls international aid plea as fires force thousands from their homes. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Friday held urgent consultations as thousands of people were evacuated from their homes as wildfires raged across the country, saying that he would call for international assistance if the situation deteriorated. Firefighters were battling multiple blazes Friday near communities and major highways across the country and in the West Bank amid an intense heat wave. The fires caused more than 5,000 people to be evacuated from the northern town of Nof Hagalil. I received updates from the fire chief and I asked him to ensure that we are using all our resources and, if need be, consider international assistance, Netanyahu tweeted after meeting with internal security police and National Security Council officials. A statement from his office said that he was assured that currently the situation was under control and that firefighters were being assisted by the police and the Israel Defense Force's Home Front Command. Israel formed a regional firefighting alliance with Cyprus and Greece after Israel was devastated in 2016 
by a series of brush fires that burned tens of thousands of acres, wounded some 200 people, and damaged or destroyed hundreds of homes. The country was forced to ask allies to send firefighting planes and other equipment and personnel to help fight the blazes that were also largely caused by a late fall heat wave with dry weather and strong winds. Firefighter Chief Deddy Simke told Channel 12 that his forces battled 250 fires on Friday, including seven major blazes. Simchi said investigators were now starting to probe the cause of the fires. We believe that most will be found to have been caused by human factors. We don't yet know if it was negligence or deliberate, he said, noting that Israel does not suffer from frequent lightning strikes. The Ynet news site quoted unnamed security officials as, having, uh, as saying that there was concern some of the fires in the West Bank may have been deliberately started by Palestinians. Palestinian arson was widely blamed for many of the fires in 2016, but ultimately no one was prosecuted for nationalistically motivated arson. Palestinian sources said several blazes were caused by IDF smoke and tear gas canisters fired during clashes with Palestinian protesters. President Ruvain Rivlin also expressed his concern and support for those affected. I'm following with concern the updates on the fire spreading across several parts of the country. My heart is with the citizens who have been evacuated, he said, adding his thanks to all those taking part in the firefighting efforts. In the most serious incident in Nof Hagalil near Nazareth, at least 5,000 people were ordered to leave their homes, with many taken to hotels in parts of the city that were unaffected. At least 30 firefighter teams were operating to gain control of the fires. Two people were lightly hurt after inhaling smoke and were treated by paramedics. Seven homes were destroyed and dozens more damaged by the fire. The situation around Nofa Galil is grave, said member of Knesset Aida Tuma Silman of the Joint List Party, posting a video to Twitter of the blaze. The fire raging there threatens thousands of families in the city and in nearby villages. By Friday evening, some of the residents were allowed to return to their homes. Firefighters were also battling large fires near six other communities, with thousands more people being evacuated. Sections of the major north-south Route 6 highway and the 434 highway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem were closed in parts. In the West Bank settlement of Kafar Ha'oranim, near the city of Modi'in, several houses were destroyed before firefighters managed to gain control of the blaze. The Binyamin Regional Council in the West Bank said 80 families had been forced to evacuate their homes in Kafar Ha'oranim. The fire managed to burn down one home entirely and three others incurred significant damages. In addition, millions of shekels and damages were caused to the settlement security fence, as well as other infrastructure in the town, the regional council said. Police said 25 firefighting teams and aircraft were deployed at Kafar Ha'oranim, with windy conditions hampering their efforts. That the IDF said that dozens of its soldiers had been dispatched to the Mevo Dotan settlement, along with the central town of Bat Hafer, to assist in the evacuation of families whose homes were in the line of fire. Another large fire was reported near Um al-Qutuf, east of Hadera. Some 13 firefighting teams were at the scene and working to douse the flames. Residents were evacuated from the Arab village as well as from nearby Kafar 
Kara, and Arara. Blazes had also broken out near the towns of Hadera, Emekhefer, Nazareth, Um al-Kutuf, Foridis, Maragaliot, and Lapidot. Elsewhere in the West Bank, the Palestinian civil defense was fighting 60 fires across areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority, the agency said. In a press release, the civil defense added that its crews dealt with a large fire that broke out in a plastic fannery, uh, factory in Salfit, Governorat, and another that broke out in a warehouse in Tubas, Governorat. A rare October heat wave ramped up over Israel Thursday, bringing blazing temperatures to many parts of the country as an alarmingly hot summer and fall continued to grip the region. Jerusalem and Haifa experienced a searing 94 degrees Thursday afternoon, while Tel Aviv saw a high of 91. And next from the Times of Israel, citing virus, chief rabbis urge Israelis not to pray indoors on Simchat Torah. Israel's chief rabbis implored Israelis Friday to refrain from praying indoors and kissing Torah scrolls during the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah, which begins Friday evening amid a nationwide lockdown to contain the coronavirus pandemic. The holiday at the end of Sukkot marks the end of the yearly cycle of Torah readings and the beginning of a new one. It is traditionally celebrated with hakafot, when worshippers gather at synagogues and circle the prayer hall en masse while holding Torah scrolls and dancing. As part of the ongoing lockdown over the holiday period, prayers in indoor spaces have been capped at 10 people, and those outdoors can have no more than 20 worshippers. Citing a senior police official, Haaretz reported that while police would deploy in force for the holiday throughout the country, they would not enter synagogues to disperse worshippers or scuffle with those holding Torah scrolls. Referring to verses from the Torah and the Jewish legal principle of pikuah nefesh, or saving a life, Chief Ashkenazi Rabbi David Lau and Chief Sephardi Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef urged Israelis to follow the lockdown restrictions. These, are, these days are days of great danger, of historic plague, days in which the angel of death is moving around and harming, harming everyone, they wrote in a letter published Friday morning in Yidiot Achronot Daily. They said worshippers should therefore pray outdoors, maintain social distancing, wear masks, and avoid gatherings. With all of the pain of not being able to celebrate Simchat Torah as we do every year, Torah scrolls must not be passed between worshippers and must not be kissed so as not to infect each other, Lau and Yosef said. The chief rabbis advised shortening the hakafot to the minimum possible and said there should not be contact with others during the festive dancing. We are the descendants of one nation. One virus is threatening all of us. Separatism and violence are not our way. Only with our combined strength can we, with the help of God, get through this difficult period, they said, apparently referring to the recent repeated clashes between ultra-Orthodox Jews and police enforcing the virus rules. Lau and Yosef also implored worshippers to recite a prayer for ending the pandemic. Their letter comes a day after Yidiot's Ynet news site reported that top rabbis in B'nai Brak, an ultra-Orthodox suburb of Tel Aviv that has the second most infections of any city in Israel, told residents they could pray and dance in synagogues during Simchat Torah in contravention of coronavirus guidelines. 
The rabbis published a letter saying prayers in open spaces are preferable, but that gathering inside synagogue yards, as well as in the buildings themselves, is allowed. Observe the mitzvot of the day along with the necessary caution at this time, so not to be harmed or, God forbid, to not harm others. Rabbis Tzvi Rosenblatt, Chaim Yitzchak Isaac Landau, and Masood Ben Shimon wrote, also Thursday, Prime Minister Benjamin Net- Netanyahu urged the ultra-Orthodox public to stick to the rules this weekend while marking the festival of Simchat Torah. I ask everyone who is listening, protect yourselves. No dancing on Simchat Torah, Netanyahu told Kol Barama Radio. There is no greater blasphemy than for us to do, lose lives due to Simchat Torah. Pray outside, keep the rules, and sanctify both the Torah and the value of life. Criticism of the ultra-Orthodox community has been growing in recent days. Though many in the community are keeping to guidelines, a significant number are disregarding lockdown restrictions during the Sukkot holiday, including by continuing to host mass gatherings. The ultra-Orthodox have seen sky-high coronavirus infection rates with an assessment last week, finding that the rate of infection in the community is 2.5 times that of the national average. Spiraling infections across the country prompted the current lockdown the second this year. Although initially scheduled to be lifted at the end of the Sukkot holiday, officials have said it will continue for at least a week longer before any easing of restrictions take place. And next from the Times of Israel, Netanyahu tells Ethiopian Prime Minister he plans to airlift 2,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke Friday with Ethiopian leader Abi Ahmed, informing him of his plans to airlift 2,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel. I updated Prime Minister Abi that I intend to immediately bring some 2,000 people from Addis Ababa and Gondar as part of our commitment to continuing the Aliyah of Jews to Israel, uh, Netanyahu tweeted. Netanyahu said Abi replied that there was no impediment to the move and that it symbolizes the special relationship between the peoples. Netanyahu said Abi also congratulated him on the recent normalization deals signed between Israel and the United Arab Emirate and Bahrain, and also the two discussed deepening Israel's agricultural assistance to Ethiopia. Netanyahu on Thursday said the cabinet will vote next week on the planned airlift. The proposal earmarks 370 million shekels, or $109 million, for mass immigration, the Prime Minister's office said. Half a year ago, I committed to bringing the rest of the Jews of Ethiopia to Israel, Netanyahu said in a statement from his office. Monday's cabinet vote is a stepping stone on the way to bringing the rest, he added. We have also funded 80 million shekels for the community's activities. We stand by our commitments. The announcement came days after a prominent anti-Netanyahu protester was heard on a video making a racially charged remark to a police officer of Ethiopian descent. Deputy Public Security Minister Gadi Yavarkin of Likud, who is Ethiopian-Israeli, thanked the Prime Minister for the plan while taking aim at Amir Haskell, the leader of the Ein Matzav protest group. Despite the racist calls we're hearing, here is the answer. The best response is the continued immigration of Ethiopian Jewry and certainly not to patronize them and to tell them to thank anyone who had some sort of marginal role in their immigration, Ivarkin said. 
Haskell faced criticism after a video surfaced on Tuesday of him being arrested outside the Prime Minister's residence in August, telling a policewoman of Ethiopian origin, I brought your parents here from Ethiopia. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Israel's first-ever cabinet minister of Ethiopian descent, Immigration Absorption Minister Penina Tamano Shata, has been pressing the government to rescue as many people from the Jewish community in p possible, as possible in light of reports that up to 14,000 Ethiopians waiting to immigrate to Israel are facing a coronavirus-related humanitarian disaster. The government policy on the immigration of Ethiopian Jews in recent years has been rife with abandoned pledges. In 2013, the Jewish agency declared the end of Ethiopian Aliyah, promoting protests by Ethiopian lawmakers and community members in Israel. In November 2015, the government passed a decision to airlift the last of the community waiting in Addis Ababa and Gondar to Israel within five years. Since that decision, however, just 2,257 Ethiopians have been brought in dribs and drabs according to Jewish agency figures. Severe malnutrition is rampant in the community, and while there are no reported cases of COVID-19 among them yet, the disease is spreading in Ethiopia with more than 80,000 cases and 1,255 deaths. On August 19, Tamano Shata of the Blue and White Party presented a 1.3 billion shekel outline to the Knesset Immigration Committee to bring 8,000 Ethiopians to Israel and to close the camps in Gondar and Addis Ababa for good. She announced last month that the government would airlift 2,000 Ethiopian Jews, drawing mixed reactions from activists campaigning for all to be allowed to move to Israel. About 9,000 of the would-be immigrants have been waiting for 15 or more years to emigrate, local activists say. About a quarter of that number, located in the capital, Addis Ababa, have been waiting for more than 20 years, they say, while the rest, in Gondar City, have been hanging on for 15 to 20 years. The coronavirus has hit the group very hard economically. The Times of Israel has been told by several sources. Work has dried up and food is in short supply, with prices up by 35 to 50 percent. Families in Israel who previously sent their relatives money are strapped for cash because of their own COVID-19-related problems, and philanthropic organizations are less able to raise donations due to the pandemic. About 140,000 Ethiopian Jews live in Israel today, a small minority in a country of nearly 9 million. Some 2,200 were airlifted to Israel during Operation Moses in 1984 and Operation Solomon in 1991, mostly from the Beta Israel community. While Ethiopian Jewish immigrants from the Beta Israel community are recognized as fully Jewish, immigrants from Ethiopia belonging to the smaller Falash Mura community are, are required to undergo Orthodox conversion after immigrating. The Falash Mura are Ethiopian Jews whose ancestors converted to Christianity, often under duress, generations ago. Some 30,000 of them have immigrated to Israel since 1997, according to Netanyahu's office. Because the Interior Ministry does not consider the Falash Mura to be Jewish, they cannot immigrate under the law of return, and therefore must get special permission from the government to move to Israel. And next from the Times of Israel, top New York Haredi rabbi, virus compliance waned because people thought crisis passed, 
Agudath Israel spokesman says Brooklyn protests sparked by anger at New York authorities, who, he says, bullied Orthodox Jewish community instead of engaging with it by Jacob Magid, New York. A prominent Orthodox rabbi in New York acknowledged Thursday that the city's Haredim had become complacent following the first wave of the coronavirus outbreak. However, he said that New York authorities' failure to engage with the community leaders caused the angry protests that made national headlines this week. Agudath Israel of America's public affairs director, Avi Shafran, told the Times of Israel that adherence to, public, uh, to health guidelines fell somewhat to the wayside over the summer because people felt wrongly that the crisis had passed. During the first wave of the pandemic earlier this year, New York was the country's deadliest hotspot, with Haredi communities in Brooklyn and elsewhere hit particularly hard. The city wrestled its outbreak down to a steady and relatively low level of infections over the summer, but cases have been rising in recent weeks, with hospitalizations starting to follow. Shafrin, whose Agudath Israel organization serves as an umbrella body for Orthodox groups in the United States, suggested that it took New York Haredim longer to internalize that the virus was once again on the rise. When, back in the spring, ambulance sirens, uh, sirens were the background sound of everyday life and everybody knew someone who had succumbed to the deadly virus, people were compelled to pay attention. When things are quiet, as they generally have been more recently, it is easy to become complacent. That is human nature. Once the uptick was determined and confirmed, though, things began to change, Shafrin said pointing to improved compliance in the community with mask-wearing guidelines in recent days. Had the governor and the mayor truly engaged the Orthodox leadership in a good-faith effort to build on that recognition, things would have been very different from the anger and frustration we are seeing now, Shafrin said, referring to the Tuesday and Wednesday night protests against new coronavirus restrictions. The measures imposed by New York State restrict access to businesses, houses of worship, and schools in and near areas where infections are climbing. The affected areas in New York City are largely Orthodox strongholds, and some community members have accused authorities of singling the community out for enforcement. Hundreds of Haredim protested at the Borough Park demonstrations, which included mask burning and descended into violence on both nights. Demonstrators assaulted two members of the community who they accused of reporting lockdown violations to the press or the authorities. Cuomo announced the fresh restrictions Tuesday. He said the new rules are based solely on the science and coronavirus case clusters in areas that, in his view, have flouted the state's existing virus safety rules. Shafrin called the latest measures utterly unreasonable, arguing that differentiating the severity of measures based on zip codes punishes some institutions that have been complying with the virus guidelines, while giving others a pass because they happen to be outside of a red zone. He also took issue with Cuomo singling, singling out Orthodox Jews in recent press conferences, saying both the briefings and the media's choice of headlines and photos all are responsible uh, irresponsible acts when deadly violence against Jews is still vivid in recent memory. Shafrin highlighted the front page of Thursday's New York Daily News, which featured a headline reading, Oi, Revolt, 
plastered over a picture from the previous night's protest, along with a quote from a community member who said, Here in Borough Park, we don't go by the laws of America. We have our own laws. He compared the tabloid to an unruly child and called the front page layout typically irresponsible yellow journalism. Schaffern acknowledged that a community's adherence to health guidelines was unlikely to draw headlines, but declaimed what he said was the tendency of many in the media to zero in on rabble-rousers and irresponsible actors, even if they're in the minority. He said the lack of compliance to virus guidelines in some parts of the Orthodox community could be due to the right-wing radio factor, the belief among many Haredim that, as talk show blowhards and some political figures claim, the virus is a hoax or something exaggerated. Schaffrin added the lack of compliance in recent months had less to do with allegiance to far-right shock jocks and was more due to the lack of sirens and funerals. And next, Trump envoy uh, brokers Etrog deal of the century by Ron Compeyes of JTA, Washington. There was a hard deadline to meet, and the job involved delicate international negotiations, but the Trump administration's top Middle East envoy got on the job. Thanks to Avi Berkowitz, Sukkot was was saved for tens of thousands of New York-area Jews. Fox News reported Wednesday that Berkowitz led a successful effort to circumvent pandemic restrictions and bring to the United States 100,000 etrogs, or citrons, one of the four species traditionally waved together during the Sukkot holiday, which began last Friday evening. We are extremely grateful to the Trump administration for immediately responding to our request for assistance after we learned that esrog importers would not be able to enter Italy due to reciprocal COVID travel restrictions, Fox quoted Rabbi David Niederman, the president of United Jewish Organizations of Williamsburg and North Brooklyn, is saying, using an alternative spelling for etrog. A senior administration official told the Jewish agency, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, that in August Berkowitz got calls from New York rabbis asking for help. Mutual restrictions on travels were keeping kosher supervisors from entering Italy to supervise the export. Berkowitz then mired in helping to shape what would become the Abraham Accords, normalizing relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, took the time to contact the Italian embassy. The official told JTA that the talks culminated in allowing the supervisors to enter Italy, where they inspected the Etrog. And next from JTA, officials fear violence on U.S. Election Day. Some worry it could target Jews, by Ben Sales. Ryan Greer used to spend his days trying to prevent people from becoming radicalized and joining ISIS. Now he and several former colleagues who used to work on combating foreign terrorism are paying attention to a threat closer to home, white supremacist violence in the United States. As Election Day nears, Greer sees that threat as growing ever more urgent. Right-wing extremist groups see the November 3rd election as an apocalyptic moment where the country's fate hangs in the balance, Greer said, and he is concerned that Jews may be among the target of groups prepared to take up arms to ensure that U.S. President Donald Trump wins re-election. We're not necessarily predicting that there will be a civil war, but we are very concerned that there will be some violent acts, said Greer. 
now the Anti-Defamation League's Director for Program Assessment and Strategy. As the conspiracy theories become more urgent, many of them may be directed toward Jews. Officials that focus on Jewish security believe this election and its aftermath are going to be particularly dangerous for Jews due to a toxic mix of conditions that have been brewing for months. The election is taking place after months of street protests occasionally marked by violence and even vigilante killing. An ongoing pandemic has led to a surge in voting by mail, making it possible the election outcome will remain unknown for days or even weeks. And the president has repeatedly questioned the integrity of the electoral process, refusing to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, and declining to denounce the white supremacist groups that support him during a debate. He did condemn white supremacists on Fox News later in the week. We're worried about everything from simple tactics to vehicle rammings, which we have continued to see deployed across the country in protests and basic civil gatherings, to active threat events, said Michael Master, CEO of the, uh, the Secure Community Network, which coordinates security for Jewish institutions nationwide. Among domestic violent extremists, those who are racially and ethnically motivated, specifically white supremacist extremists, remain the most persistent le lethal threat in the United States. Recent reports from law enforcement agencies confirm this. The Department of Homeland Security reported this week that white supremacists are the most persistent and lethal threat in the United States, noting that such groups are characterized by hatred for Jews. In a threat assessment published last month, New Jersey's Office of Homeland Security and Preparedness sketched out various scenarios in which a disputed election prompts racially motivated extremists to scapegoat minorities and government officials, leading to violence and loss of life. A recent support by a report by the Network Contagion Research Institute, which tracks online hate, documented how violent groups in what it calls the militia sphere are using increasingly violent rhetoric and reaching more people. On Thursday, the FBI announced charges against a group of anti-government extremists who had plotted to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Masters' organization is currently focused on securing Jewish institutions that serve as polling places or vote-counting sites. He estimates that there will be hundreds of polling locations either in or near Jewish institutions and fears they could become hotspots for extremist violence. Masters has been focused on synagogue security for years, especially since the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting in 2008 but securing synagogues on election day will be especially risky. A large number of unknown people will be entering the building, the doors will likely remain open, and the building may have been unused and unstaffed since March due to the pandemic. They may be opening for the first time since the start of the pandemic, or they may be opening their doors in a way which runs contrary to established security procedures and protocols that they've adapted over the years, Masters said. There can be a compounded threat both because of the concern about the potential for violence around election-related sites, compounded with the fact they are also Jewish institutions and organizations which may increase their attractiveness as a target for some individuals. 
Cassie Miller, a senior research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center, said extremist groups may feel even more empowered to take action after last week's debate, in which Trump told the Proud Boys, a violent far-right group, to stand back and stand by. Many such groups will accept nothing short of a Trump victory, Miller said, and are prepared to employ violence to ensure that result. Within the far right, there's been an increasing convergence around the idea that we're headed towards a civil war or that we're on the abyss of some large-scale civil unrest, Miller said. You're creating a combustible situation when you have people with guns who feel like they're acting at the behest of the president and feel like what they're doing is sanctioned by law enforcement. Miller added that while Jews may be at risk, she also fears that communities of color could be in danger, especially in swing states as far-right groups could attempt to suppress their votes. A lot of times, they're suspicious of people who are immigrants voting, so who are they going to look for? Probably people of color, she said. I think we need to be particularly cognizant of the dangers that exist in polling places where you have large non-white populations. Greer worries that Election Day violence could produce a snowball effect in which extremists on the left and right clash leading to lethal shootings as occurred this summer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Portland, Oregon. Those, in turn, could inspire more clashes and more shootings. To try to forestall this, the ADL is asking local officials to reassure voters that the election will be fair and to speak out against violence. While such appeals may not reach core members of extremist groups, Greer hopes they may get to people on the margins. The Secure Community Network, meanwhile, is urging Jewish institutions to monitor entry and exit points and even erect barriers to protect people waiting online from possible car ramming attacks. It is amazing what you have to consider to allow people to exercise their basic right of enfranchisement in this country in the year 2020, Masters said. While Greer is careful to note that extremism exists on both sides of the political divide, he says that far-right political conspiracies have already inspired the murder of Jews in Pittsburgh, a dynamic that could well play out against again this year. The individual who was the perpetrator of uh, was a believer of Jewish religious conspiracy theories related to immigration theory, said Greer, referring to the Pittsburgh shooter. That's a political concern that led to an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that led to the largest attack on U.S. soil that was motivated by anti-Semitism. You can imagine in the political fallout when there's a political crisis, a similar set of conspiracy theories that go specifically after Jews. And next from the Times of Israel, in U.S. election to be won on margins, modern Orthodox Jews may be key demographic by Jacob Magid. Washington. Dozens of black yarmulkes peppered the White House South Lawn at the September 15th signing of the normalization agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and between Israel and Bahrain. After the historic peace deals were duly signed, the Orthodox witnesses there made fresh history by gathering for a Mincha afternoon prayer service. While previous Middle East peace signing confabs that were hosted by Democratic administrations welcomed similar numbers of Jews, these modern Orthodox men are arguably an apt representation of the currently COVID-afflicted U.S. President Donald Trump's Jewish supporters. 
Modern Orthodox Jews have outsized visibility not only in pro-Israel crowds at White House events, but also within the administration itself. Members of the community whose religious orientation falls between the conservative denomination and the more stringent traditional Orthodox world have been appointed to posts such as Senior White House Advisor, Peace Envoy, and U.S. Ambassador to Israel. Despite the optics, however, those familiar with the small subset of roughly 300,000 U.S. Jews caution against drawing conclusions from the South Lawn crowd regarding the movement's broader voting patterns. Experts say modern Orthodox voters are actually far more diverse than those Jews in denominations to the left and the right. If that weren't enough, most of these Jews are concentrated in swing states such as Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. As a result, modern Orthodox Jews become a demographic to watch in the run-up to November, with both major parties seeking to expand their support beyond traditional boundaries. Studying the U.S. Jewish vote at the macro level can very easily lead one to write off the demographic as comfortably tucked in the Democratic Party's pocket. Trump lamented as much during a phone call with American Jew Jewish leaders last month. The Democrats get 75% of the Jewish vote, sort of like habit. It's automatic. The large reform and conservative movements, as well as denominationally unaffiliated Jews, all overwhelmingly back Democrats. Meanwhile, ultra-Orthodox Americans largely support Republican politics. But where does this leave modern Orthodoxy? A January 2020 survey regarding Orthodox political views from the Nishma Research Institute found that 53% of modern Orthodox Jews identify as Democrat, liberal, progressive, or left-leaning, compared to 37% who describe themselves as Republican, conservative, right-leaning or libertarian. The numbers were starkly different from ultra-Orthodox or Haredi Americans, 65% of whom identified as right-leaning compared to 20% who preferred a left-leaning classification. Half a year later, Nishma's June 2020 survey showed presidential voting preference among modern Orthodox Jews slanted 70-30 in favor of Democratic nominee Joe Biden. However, the study was conducted before the signing of the U.S. brokered normalization agreements, which Nishma President uh, Mark Trencher speculated might have shifted some voters in favor of Trump. As a possible explanation for the overall leftward lean of the modern Orthodox, Trencher pointed to additional 2015 polling data from the Pew Research Institute that found roughly 40% of the subset's members to be Baale Teshuva those who adopt a fully observant lifestyle after having been raised not religious. When those Balei Teshuva are asked if there's anything that they do hang on to once they start leading a more religious lifestyle, they say liberal political views, Trencher said. But the pollster cautioned against generalizing regarding modern orthodox political leanings. It's the biggest little tent in Judaism. Ideologically, it's very wide, but in terms of size, it's rather small. Those on the more liberal end of the movement share views similar to their non-Orthodox brethren, while people on the more conservative flank of the movement share more in common politically with ultra-Orthodox Jews, he said. However, the latter group of modern Orthodox Jews are more likely to leave the modern movement for strands further to the right, Trencher added, 
perhaps helping to explain the leftward tilt of the subset as a whole. Trencher, who is modern orthodox himself, said that while the movement may be more diverse as a whole, the synagogues themselves tend to be rather homogenous. It would not surprise me to see an entire synagogue support a Republican presidential candidate, even if, if it goes against the overall data, because we gravitate toward people with the same views, Trencher said. This notion of synagogues voting along party lines met pushback elsewhere. Maharat Ruth Belinsky of the Ohev Shalom Modern Orthodox Synagogue in Washington insisted that you can't assume a shul is completely Democrat or completely Republican. It speaks to the general identity of modern orthodoxy, whose members find themselves in both the religious and secular worlds. The female orthodox religious leader acknowledged that this balancing act can make for complicated synagogue-wide conversations. It makes discussing politics in shul very difficult, Belinsky said. She said that during her first Friday night service at her synagogue after the 2016 election, she decided to simply recognize the concerns felt by many of her members as a result of Trump's victory. A few people felt I was picking sides, Belinsky said, but it's very hard knowing that you have so many people in your community who are in pain and shock and not addressing it. On the other hand, there are also those who feel differently. Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg of the Modern Orthodox Boca Raton Synagogue echoed Belinsky's point regarding the sensitive role politics can play in the community. Though we seem to say this with each election, this cycle seems to be polarizing more than ever. People are so adamant in their positions, they struggle to maintain relationships with people who think or vote differently, he lamented. Still, the Florida rabbi has not sought to avoid the subject altogether. We have hosted several presidential candidates at our shul in the past, and while some question the wisdom or judgment of introducing politics into a shul, I believe that if we want our voices to be heard and we seek to influence policy, there is no greater way than inviting the discussion into the community itself, Goldberg said. Addressing the common assumption that Jews as a whole overwhelmingly vote Democrat, Brandeis University professor and American Jewish history scholar Jonathan Sarna said that those who subscribe to it are missing broader trends among Jewish voters, particularly Orthodox ones. A very important change has taken place over the last half century, he said, comparing the 1964 presidential election, when Republican Barry Goldwater received roughly 10% of the Jewish vote, Two more recent elections where Republican candidates have received between 25 and 35 percent of the Jewish vote. That would mean bedrock Republicanism has tripled over the last 50 to 60 years, he added, crediting the shift to Haredi and modern Orthodox Jews in particular. Republican Jewish Coalition Executive Director Matt Brooks said that his group is realistic in recognizing that Trump won't be able to receive the vast majority of the Jewish vote come November. But he is confident that Trump would be able to build on the 24% of the Jewish vote that he won in 2016, asserting that crossing the 30% mark may prove key to victory in a close election. We don't need a majority. Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis won the 2018 election by less than 40,000 votes, thanks in no small part to the Jewish community, Brooks said. Because we see a clear correlation between the level of one's religious observance with the likelihood that they'll vote Republican, Orthodox Jews are absolutely among those we'll be targeting to come out for the president, Brooks said. 
He did not differentiate between strands of orthodoxy, but said that the propensity of the movement's members to live in swing states such as Florida, along with their tendency to vote in higher numbers than other subgroups, gives them outsized influence on Election Day. Building on that, Nathan Diamond, executive director of Orthodox Union Advocacy Center, told AFP in an interview last week that the coming election is about margins, and it's about margins in key sweet swing states. As OU-affiliated synagogues overwhelmingly identify as modern Orthodox, Diamant said the denomination is the most swing-prone in the faith. Diamant said that views of Biden among Orthodox Jews tend to skew more positive than those on Hillary Clinton in 2016. However, on the other hand, Trump has a record to run on when it comes to the specific issues that appeal to the Jewish voters the president's team wants to court. At the top of those issues is Israel. Officials from both parties insisted to the Times of Israel that the Orthodox voting bloc is not a monolith and that a variety of matters can sway its members' decision at the polls. These include the economy, school choice, the rise of anti-Semitism, and the recent protests against racial injustice. However, modern Orthodox community leaders said that Israel still carries outsized importance for their members. In the modern Orthodox world, Israel is the prime issue that people vote on more than anything else, so people will generally vote for who they think will be the most supportive of Israel, said Rabbi Menachem Ganach, the CEO of the OU Kosher Certification Agency. This is likely due to the fact that Zionism is seen as a central part of the faith. 79% of modern Orthodox view caring about Israel as an essential part of being Jewish, according to the 2015 Pew survey. This attachment is significantly stronger than what was expressed by conservative Jews, 58%, ultra-Orthodox Jews, 45%, and Reformed Jews, 32%. But Ganak clarified that caring about Israel does not automatically lead modern Orthodox Jews to vote Republican. Many believe that what Israel needs is a strong America and that is respected around the world, and if they think basic alliances are being harmed by this president, they may choose to vote Democrat, he said. Biden can make the, the case for his own record on U.S.-Israel relations, which has included personal relationships with every prime minister since Golda Meir. The former vice president has, has steered clear of the proposals critical of the Jewish state that some of his Democratic primary rivals had offered. But even for those who still see Israel as the primary issue, it may not be the deciding factor at the ballot if both the candidates are seen as having relatively strong records on the Jewish state, Ganach argued. And according to the Jewish Democratic Council of America's executive director, Hallie Seufer, that may just be the case. She claimed that there's not a huge disparity between the two candidates when it comes to Israel. Jews trust Joe Biden when it comes to Israel, so they're voting on other matters where there's the biggest discrepancy between the two candidates, she said. She highlighted Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and the rise of anti-Semitism as other decisive issues for Jewish voters. For Republican Jewish Coalition head Brooks, there is no equivalency. He asserted Trump's record on Israel, recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, moving the U.S. Embassy there, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, and unveiling an Israeli-Palestinian peace plan widely regarded 
as more symbolic to the Jewish state than any previous proposal, places him in a league above Biden. Moreover, Brooks argued the president's brokering of normalization deals between Israel and two of its Arab neighbors chips away at a broader democratic uh, narrative that paints Trump as incapable. But while not diminishing the importance of Israel to modern Orthodox voters, Boca Raton Rabbi Goldberg suggested that for those in his community and others like it, the calculus might be slightly different. For those for whom Torah is the ultimate guide and authority, it is extremely challenging to try to reconcile what feels like Torah values and policies with anti-Torah behaviors in character, he said, without specifying either candidate by name. With some, this election comes down to which they think the Torah cares more about. In some ways, that that is an oversimplification as character impacts policy, but I do believe that tension and conflict are there even for those who are prepared to pinch their nose and vote in either direction in this election, Goldberg added. And next, some updates from JTA from Washington. Two Orthodox umbrella groups and the Jewish Federations of North America joined a faith group's letter to congressional appropriators asking them to quadruple funds for security grants for vulnerable nonprofits to $360 million. The letter, also signed by Christian, Sikh, and Muslim groups, says the $90 million available has run out. At a time of increasing extremism and antagonism, Towards different religious groups and religion in general, we believe significant increased funding for this important government program in fiscal year 2021 is imperative, said the letter sent this week signed by the JFNA, Orthodox Union, and Agudath Israel of America, among others. Congressional funding for the grant, initiated in 2005, has already massively increased in recent years with the intensification of threats on religious targets. From $15 million when the program was started, funding is now at $90 million. Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, last year called for a similar quadrupling in funding. The grant program, which helps pay for security features for buildings, was established following lobbying by the Orthodox Union, Aguda, and JFNA, and for years all but a few of the institutions availing themselves of the funds were Jewish. In recent years, other denominations have asked for funds and have sought guidance from Jewish groups on how to get the funds. An array of liberal Jewish groups signed a letter with other faith-based organizations appealing to senators not to confirm President Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett, citing her past opposition to the Affordable Care Act. The letter, signed by 41 groups in all and spearheaded by the National Council of Jewish Women, notes a case upcoming on the Supreme Court docket that would dismantle the act known as Obamacare. President Donald Trump, who once the legislation dismantled, has said he will replace some of its provisions, including guaranteeing coverage to people with pre-existing conditions, but he has not yet advanced legislation that would do so. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.